If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 17. Gospel of Luke and chapter 17. We're going to camp out in verses 20 and 21 in our time together this morning. If you don't have a Luke scripture journal and you want one, we have one left that's there on the welcome table. If you feel like that would be helpful for you as we continue to go through this series in the next decade. Um, It's not going to take that long. Uh, go ahead and grab that uh, for yourself. Uh, but Luke 17, 20 through 21, we started looking, we looked at 11 through 19 last week, and we'll continue in this uh, other bridge section today. So if you got it, say, I got it. And also behind me on the screen and my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. The Holy Spirit says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. How many failed end-of-the-world predictions have you lived through? (laughs) All of them. If you live long enough, you will stack up quite a few. Some catch headlines, some fly under the radar. Uh, When I was too little to remember, both Hal Lindsey and Edgar Wisenant predicted the world would end in 1988. Uh, The latter of which wrote a little pamphlet, I don't know if any of you guys remember this, called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. The rapture did not, in fact, happen in 1988. Or it's just bad news for us, right? Then, of course, there was Harold Camping, who predicted the world would end in 1994. First, he said it would be on September 6th, but when that came and went, he said that his math was just a little fuzzy, and he actually meant the 29th. When that came and went, uh, he said he forgot to carry the one, and it was actually October 2nd. Well, that didn't happen either, so he disappeared for a while. January 1st, 2000 was a big day for doomsday predictions. Numerous people said the world would either end on January 1st, 2000, or it would be the beginning of the end. This included Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye, the latter of which said that the Y2K bug, you guys remember the Y2K bug, would cause global chaos, which the Antichrist would use to rise up to power, and then the end would be ushered in. In 2011, Harold Camping showed up again. And this time, He predicted that 3% of the world's population would be taken up to heaven in the rapture, and then devastating earthquakes would occur across the globe on May 21st, and then the world would end completely five months later on October 21st. This caused his followers to actually sell their possessions, and quite a few of them quit their jobs leading up to this date. Then a year later, there was the idea that the world would end because of some interplanetary object would strike Earth like a meteor or another planet. Uh, This based on the Mayan calendar and was also the basis for a film that starred John Cusack that was objectively terrible, entitled 2012. The topic of the end is big business in our time, isn't it? The other day, I was in a bookstore that has a decent-sized Christian section, and there were probably three or four shelves just about end times and prophecy. This is not, however, a new phenomenon. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, people have been predicting the end of all things. Typically, these predictions are tied to some kind of event, or at the very least, the predictors say that the end will be accompanied by 
all kinds of wars or natural disasters or other such spectacle. These failed prognosticators oftentimes say that you'll know the end is nigh by paying attention to an uptick of sin or unrest or military battles, nuclear holocaust or nature rising up and trying to kill us through earthquakes or hurricanes or volcanoes or floods. What is it about the being human that we have a fascination with the end? I think Russell Moore was onto something when he said there's something embedded in the human conscience that knows there's a day of reckoning. In the heart, God has implanted a witness to the coming judgment. I think that's why we take note of old prophecies of the end, wherever they come from, and why every culture tells stories, sings songs, makes movies and television shows about the end of it all. The Mayans were wrong about the calendar, but they weren't wrong that the arc of history is headed towards something cataclysmic. Not only is there something embedded in the human conscience that knows that all of this is heading somewhere, but it seems that we cannot conceive of the end without it being accompanied by signs that unmistakably signal that it is, in fact, the end. That's what the Pharisees thought, too. They thought the end of the age would come with signs and wonders. Not only that, they also thought the kingdom of God would come with signs and wonders since, of course, the kingdom of God uh, would signal the end of the age, and they're inseparably linked. Therefore, in their minds, the kingdom of God was something that was strictly reserved for the future. These also appear to be the opinions that many people, including many Christians today, share with the Pharisees. But what did Jesus think? The text before us and the one to follow next week will clue us in on some of Jesus' thoughts on not only the end of the age, but the kingdom of God and how the two are related. So let's dive in and see. Fresh off Jesus' healing of the nine ungrateful lepers and the one grateful one, the Pharisees approach Jesus with the question. You see it? When is the kingdom of God coming to the world? When will the kingdom of God be seen and experienced by people? These are good questions, don't you think? Good questions. The assumption of the Pharisees was one that we have explored before. Their idea of the kingdom of God was that it would come through an impressive military messiah who would rise up from among the people of Israel, would vanquish all of her foes, would overthrow their oppressors, the Roman Empire included, and would return Israel to prominence as the sole superpower in the world. That's what they thought. On top of that, they thought the kingdom of God would come in the most obvious ways that there were, where people could see and say, look, there's the kingdom of God. It's here. Now, there are two things that Luke is doing for us by placing this exchange where he does in this gospel. See, you have to understand, gospel authors will sometimes place things in sequential order, right? They will place them in order that they occur. But you know, there's other times that gospel authors will arrange things thematically that communicate some other topical point about Jesus and his mission. See, if you just look back at our text, we're not told that the exchange actually took place right after the healing of the ten lepers, are we? We aren't told that this occurred even in the same village in which the healings occurred. Maybe it did, but that's not really the point, is it? <clears throat> the point is that the irony is laid on thick. How? The fact that Luke just told us that Jesus healed 10 lepers from a distance, literally reversed a disease that had no cure, and this is followed by the Pharisees wanting a sign of the kingdom's 
coming is about as ironic as you could get, don't you think? The Pharisees want a sign. But over and over again, Jesus performs these otherworldly, unexplainable miracles, but they miss their significance since they have their hard hearts set on opposing Jesus, which is the other thing that Luke is showing us here. You remember last week, we saw in 1711, Luke mentioned again that Jesus is headed where? To Jerusalem. And we talked at length about how this isn't just a mere fact about Jesus' itinerary, but was to remind us that what Jesus came to do was die in the place of the skull. Luke is showing us that this controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees is ramping up and will come to a head leading to Jesus' death at the hands of the Roman government who were in cahoots with the religious leaders. But the biggest thing we see here is that the Pharisees are asking about the arrival of the kingdom while missing the kingdom of God standing right in front of them. This should remind us of a text we looked at earlier in Luke in chapter 12. Let me read it to you. Jesus said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearances of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus was saying to the crowds there, now they know how to look up to the sky or feel the wind coming to the south and predict the weather, but they couldn't see that the kingdom of God has shown up in a person and was standing right before them. They missed that the things that Jesus did were not parlor tricks from a traveling magician, but a foretaste of the kingdom. They missed that the sorts of things Jesus said was as one who had authority because he was speaking the word of God. But at least they could read the weather right. The Pharisees knew their Bibles. They knew their prophecies. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew the kingdom of God would come with the Messiah. And yet they missed Jesus. They were looking for signs of the kingdom of God coming, and they missed the biggest, most obvious sign of all. In fact, they were conversing with the kingdom of God in this very text. Pharisees show us that it is possible to look for signs and wonders and miss Jesus. To look for God to do something and miss what he is doing in their very midst. Their assumption is that the kingdom's coming will be accompanied with all these grand, right, and obvious signs that could be observed, which, as we noted in the introduction, is the typical thinking of most people. Because, I mean, shouldn't the kingdom come like that? It's like we know of no other way than for there to be apocalyptic signs accompanying the kingdom's arrival. But that misses a fundamental aspect of the kingdom of God. It misses its very nature. See what Jesus says. What's he say? He says, the kingdom of God, what? Is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, note that word observed, okay? This is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word for observed is used. And it was a technical term that was used that carried with it the sense of calculating future events by observing the stars, okay? 
the, because the ancients assumed that astrological signs could tell them what was happening in the spiritual world. Those foolish ancients, right? Surely we moderns have moved beyond putting stock in astrological signs, right? Who would do such things? But Jesus is striking out the assumption that the kingdom of God operates in the way the kingdoms of the world do. And that, when it comes, it will be this grand affair that we mere humans could predict and see through our looking at the stars and the world and then say, ah, there it is. Look over there. The kingdom has come. Jesus says, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It is not like the kingdom's men. And its arrival and movements are not something that you can predict or that will be easy to observe. So where is it? You know, when Christopher Columbus approached King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella about finding a new way to the Orient, the motto on the Spanish flag was Ni plus ultra, which means there is nothing beyond. That's what it said. Basically, it was saying that beyond the Spanish Empire, there was nothing. But you know the story, don't you? 1492, the New World was found, even though this was not what Columbus was looking for. The motto for the empire was wrong. There was something beyond the Spanish Empire. A lot of somethings, in fact. It should have henceforth been changed to plus ultra, or there is more beyond. This is the sense of what is going on here in the text. There is more beyond what can be observed with human eyes. You are looking at the stars and the worldly powers and wars and natural phenomenon, and you're missing the kingdom present right before you. In other words, the kingdom is here, and you're missing it because the kingdom has shown up in an unassuming rabbi from a backwater town, and the evidence of the kingdom is in changed lives which, let's be honest, isn't exactly what the Pharisees were interested in. So when I stood before multiple shelves of end times prophecy books, knowing this text was coming, I scratched my head because they're telling us to look for this or that sign for the kingdom's arrival and fullness when Jesus explicitly says here, that's not how it's going to happen. Every time there's a war, you know this is true. It's another sign to them that this is the end. Every time there's new technology, it's another sign of what? That's the mark of the beast. Every time a cat sneezes in Jerusalem, it's another sign that this is finally it. What are they doing in those books? They're saying, look, here it is. There. The very thing Jesus was saying not to waste your time on, because you could very well be trying to look for signs of the kingdom and miss the king. It's possible, as one commentator said, to be fascinated with last things while neglecting the first thing. Said Ben Witherington, it could be said that the one thing such prophets of imminent doom and the approaching end of the world have in common down through the ages is that they all have a perfect track record. They have all been wrong. Their mistake is that they have reduced proper Christian expectation to calculations and prognostications, which is a violation of the very general nature of such prophecies and promises. See, we too, are we any different? We want signs, 
these big signs and these obvious signs that the kingdom of God is here and is working, don't we? We want these big revivals and these spiritual highs and these spiritual experiences and incredible excitement that we never have seen before. We want to see obvious, tangible ways that the kingdom of God is working and that we, what we are doing is taking effect. But my friend, don't you see this is not how the kingdom of God typically works? We can be looking for signs and miss what God is doing through ordinary obedience, through ordinary means of grace, through plain gathering like this and singing God's truth, and hearing God's word proclaimed week after week through our prayer and our Bible study, through fellowship and relationships across the church lines. Just ordinary stuff. Nothing over the top, nothing flashy, no spiritual high or anything we could plaster on Facebook to impress others. But those are the things that over time will be signs that the kingdom of God is working in your midst. But we can miss them. And all because we want more. But that's not how the kingdom of God works and changes lives. God changes lives through ordinary, day-by-day faithfulness and obedience. Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God is where? What does he say? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does he mean by that? He's saying that the kingdom of God has come. They're wanting to know what they should look for to know the kingdom of God has come. And as noted, they think it would be obvious with all kinds of signs that you can point to and say, there it is. But Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is already here. Well, where? In his person. The kingdom of God has shown up already. And it has shown up in Jesus. But that's not what they expected. And so they missed it. You guys remember, I know you're big uh, Lord of the Rings aficionados, right? So you remember when Frodo first met Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings. You remember that? Uh, (laughs) Aragorn was sitting in a dark corner of the Prancing Pony Salon, sitting, smoking a pipe, his face half covered with a hood, wrapped in smoke. When asked by Frodo who this mysterious man was, the owner of the lodge said, I don't know for sure. He doesn't say much. He's one of the wanderers, the guardians. So when we met Aragorn, he's an unassuming ranger named Strider. It's then that we're introduced to a poem that words are now famous among, uh, you know, since Stairway to Heaven by the greatest band of all time, Led Zeppelin, and, you know, hippies have this on their cars. All that is gold does not glitter. That's from Zeppelin, okay? Not all those who wonder are lost. Hippies, okay? So Strider travels seemingly aimlessly but he knows his destination. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? He seems to be traveling aimlessly, but he knows where he's going. But the first-time reader would be surprised to learn that this unassuming, mysterious man named Strider is actually the rightful king to Gondor, whose name is actually Aragorn. And why would you be surprised? Because maybe you were looking for someone else. Maybe you have in your mind what a king should look like and what he should be. Maybe the signs were always right there, but you missed them. Is that not the Pharisees? They are looking and looking for the kingdom to come, and they'd utterly miss the fact that the embodiment of the kingdom of God is the one who they are constantly haranguing. Surely this man couldn't be the Messiah. 
And in missing Jesus, they're missing the whole kingdom. You see? Jesus Christ, my friend, listen, is the center of the kingdom. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. The kingdom comes initially in his first advent and in fullness at his second advent. The kingdom of God is what theologians call already, not yet, meaning that the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus and it will come in full at the end of the age. It's like the story of King Arthur. You know, he was the king they were waiting for. When he died, they had hope that he would return and rule again. So on his tomb, it read, King Arthur, the once and future king. You see, Jesus is the once and future king. He was the king. He is the king. He will be king forever and ever in a kingdom without end. It is here, but we also wait its arrival in fullness. Do you see? But the most important thing to remember is that Jesus is, in some sense, the kingdom of God. He embodies the kingdom of God. He's the center of all of history. He is the center of the gospel. He is the sun in the solar system of all things. Everything revolves around him. The kingdom of God has shown up because the true king has shown up. And so we must recover. As Matthew Bates said, Jesus' kingship as a central, non-negotiable constituent of the gospel. Said Russell Moore once again, he said, often we Christians start our gospel proclamation with triumph over sin. Fair enough. The gospel of Christ is indeed the reversal of sin and of death and hell. But without a broader context, such as teaching, such teaching could treat Christ as a means to an end, a step from the Alpha of Eden to the Omega of heaven. In a truly Christian vision of the kingdom of God, though, Jesus of Nazareth isn't a hoop we jump through to extend our lives into eternity. Jesus is the kingdom of God in a person. As such, he is the meaning of life, the goal of history, and the pattern of the future. The gospel of the kingdom starts and ends with the announcement that God has made Jesus the emperor and that he plans to bend the cosmos to fit Jesus' agenda. Not the other way around. See, I pronounced it right, Chip. He wasn't paying attention. As such, the kingdom of God is brought by Jesus. And you got to get this. This is very important. The kingdom of God is brought by Jesus and does not depend on anyone or anything else. The kingdom hinges fully on Jesus. Just as the kingdom does not depend on the events that happen in this world, it does not depend on either people or place. It hinges not on any nation or ruler in this world whatsoever. I'm as patriotic as the next guy, okay? And you're like, oh no, why do you start like that? Okay, I went to Iraq and it wasn't for vacation, all right? And patriotism is a good and right thing. We need to make sure we are placing our kingdoms in their proper order. If our hope is on a Christian America, we will be sorely disappointed. If we think the kingdom of God's effectiveness and power will come if we turn this nation into a sort of theocracy, we will be not only disappointed, we will be thinking wrong about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has never and will never depend on earthly kingdoms. Whether America or Israel or every other government or nation state or ruler, 
Politics are important, okay? Don't hear me say we should disengage from them and, you know, go live in the mountains of some convent or something. But listen, the kingdom of God does not hinge on any government or politician. It hinges solely on Jesus. Said Ligon Duncan on this passage, the kingdom of God is not tied to a particular outward expression, certainly not dependent upon a particular government or political reality. See, the kingdom of God cannot be legislated into existence. It already exists in the person of Christ, who is the king above all kings and who will be the one that every person, including every ruler, king, president, prime minister, will in the end bow their knee to and confess his superiority. On top of that, the kingdom of God is the only, hear me, the only kingdom that is promised to, to last forever. No other kingdom is promised to last into eternity. The kingdom of God cannot be confined to one people or place. It will be, in the end, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It will be a mosaic of different races and ethnicities. No one people has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. No one race or nationality is the favorite of heaven. As such, the kingdom of God calls for your ultimate allegiance and loyalty above all other claimants. No one and nothing should rival your allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. So you say, yeah, I know. But come talk to me during election season next year. We shrug our soldiers and say, yeah, Jesus is supposed to have my supreme allegiance. I get it. But then why is it that we get so much more zealous for worldly politics than we do for the gospel of the kingdom of Christ? Why do we care more about how our neighbor is voting than where, where they will spend eternity? Why are we proselytizing people towards our politics and not towards the gospel? And why do we hang our hopes and our dreams on fallible, sinful politicians and parties whose terms will last four, maybe eight years when we have a king who rules all things, who is not term limited, and who is the one and only one who could bear the weight of our hopes and fulfillment? Where does our primary allegiance reside? Where is our ultimate allegiance supposed to be? How are we to order our allegiances in light of the fact that the kingdom of God has shown up in a person and that person is the one true king of all things who demands ultimate fidelity? You know, many, many years ago, my father-in-law became a U.S. citizen. And I don't know if you know the citizenship process, but there's all kinds of rigmarole. And he had to go, at the end of all this rigmarole, he had to take an oath of citizenship. And this is what it says. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have here before been a subject or citizen. He had to utterly renounce all other claimants to his allegiance and fidelity. Even if his former country went to war against the United States, if required, he would have to bear arms against his old country. Why? Because to become a citizen of America means to utterly give undivided loyalty to one's country, right? Does this mean that all other countries, including his former one, were now his enemy? No, of course not. But it meant that taking this oath meant that he had a new number one loyalty above all other claimants. To an infinitely greater degree, that is what we do when we become Christians. 
we pledge our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom above all others. Nothing is to rival our loyalty to him. Again, this doesn't mean everything else is our enemy, does it? But it does mean that our fidelity to Jesus should outpace our loyalty to anyone or anything else. Okay, but where is the kingdom of God now then? Right? We know Jesus is ascended, yes? To his rightful place on the throne of the universe. So where can the kingdom of God be found in the present? Some take Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is in your midst as meaning that the kingdom of God is within the individual, inside you. And that interpretation shouldn't surprise us, right? It's very appealing to our highly individualistic age where individual spiritual experience triumphs. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let me give you three reasons real quick. First of all, he's talking to the Pharisees, isn't he? The kingdom of God wouldn't be in them, okay? They're the very ones who missed it. (laughs) Due to, in part, their opposition to Jesus, who is the kingdom of God shown up in a person. Second, the idea of the kingdom of God entering an individual is spoken of exactly nowhere, in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of men entering the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of God entering men. Third, the word you, look at the word you there. In the midst of you, Y-O-U, is plural, not singular. So, you know, if we had our Southern Standard Edition Bible translation, the phrase would read, yes, the the kingdom of God is in the midst of y'all, right? The sense is that the kingdom of God is present within a group or community of believers who have given their allegiance to Jesus above all others. In other words, the kingdom of God can be seen today in the community that Christ has established, the church. The church is meant to be an outpost, a colony, an embassy for the kingdom of God. What is an embassy? Simply put, it's an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interest to the host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in the host nation. Think about that in light of how many people view and treat the church. Many, even many professing Christians, see the church as an unnecessary organization that they could take or leave. They see it as a weekly event or an experience or a service provider, or a social club, or a country club, or a civic club, or just another voluntary organization that isn't all that important. Many see the church as something that's nice for others who want to be involved, but frankly, they don't need it. And you know what? If the church is a social club, or a civic club, or a country club, or a service provider, then yeah, you don't need it. What if the only place you could find earthly expressions of the kingdom of God is the church? Would it matter then? What if what Jesus meant was for the local manifestation of the kingdom of heaven to be in the assembly of the redeemed? What if the church is actually a foretaste of heaven? What if Jesus did not design the Christian life to be the life of an isolated individual who relates to the king on their terms by themselves? What if I told you that phrases we like to use, such as Jesus as personal Savior, actually appear nowhere in the Bible? Now, it is true, yes, that we are saved by giving our allegiance to Jesus as individuals. That's true, isn't it? It's true that each person must repent and bend knee to Jesus to be saved. But nowhere in Scripture is individualized faith lived apart from a community of God sanctioned or encouraged. 
The Bible, as John Wesley said, knows nothing of solitary religion. The Bible knows nothing of an unchurched Christian. Says Joseph Hellerman in his excellent book that you could buy at the bookstall called When the Church Was a Family. He said, our radical overemphasis on a personal relationship with God is an American, not a biblical theological construction. We find in the Bible, rather, is a God who seems at least as concerned with his group, me in relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, as he is with the individual, me in relationship with God. Any idea we have that we can live our Christian lives on our own is an invented one, not a biblical one. Where do we get this idea that the church and our participation in it doesn't matter? Certainly not from the Bible. The place where Christ's rule is represented right now is the local church. The place where you can get a foretaste of heaven is in the local church. The only place where you can interact with a local outpost of the kingdom of God is in the local church. No other organization, not even Christian ones, can say that. The Bible says that we as Christians are sojourners and strangers in a foreign land. We are exiles traveling through a home that is not our own on our way to our true country. Where do we find refuge in a world that is not our home? Where do we go to give expression to our true allegiance? Jonathan Lehman offers a helpful illustration. He says, I spent half a year in Brussels, Belgium in college, during which time my United States passport expired. So I traveled to the U.S. Embassy in downtown Brussels. Stepping inside, they said, place me on American soil. That building, the ambassador to Belgium, and all the State Department officials working inside bear the authority of the U.S. government. They can speak for my government in a way that I, though a U.S. citizen, cannot, at least not in any official sense. Embassies and ambassadors present the official judgments of a foreign nation, what that nation wants, what it will do, what it believes. After looking at my expired passport and checking their computers, they rendered a judgment. I am, in fact, a U.S. citizen, and so they gave me a new passport. Likewise, the local church is an embassy of another land, our true home. It is the closest that you will get to heaven on earth. The local church represents Christ's rule now. It affirms and protects Jesus' citizens now. It proclaims his laws now. It bows before the rightful king and calls all people to do the same. Now, with all of that in mind, does it make sense to say that we could live the Christian life without being an active, participating member of a local church? Does it make sense to make the church an optional extra in our lives that will include when we don't have something else going on? Does it make sense, any logical sense to say that we could actually live our Christian lives just as well on our own as we can in the church when the church is where the king says his presence is made most manifest and that the church is his design for how to live the Christian life? See, when Jesus performs miracles like he did in 11 through 19 of healing leprosy or when he causes the blind to see or the lame to walk, or casts out demons, or gives paralytics the ability to leap. What is it that he's doing? He's remaking the world. He's rebuking the effects of sin. Now, that's not to say that all of those people had those infirmities because of their sin, 
But all sickness and all ailments are the result of the fall, right? Before the fall, Adam didn't even fall out of a tree and break his arm. But the effects of Eden reverberate in every pain we have. So when Jesus heals, he's giving us a foretaste of the kingdom in its fullness. He's showing how life was meant to be lived before the fall. He is previewing what we will enjoy one day in fullness if we are his. Everyone Jesus healed, though, eventually died, didn't they? But in the fullness of kingdom, all ailments will be reversed fully and finally with no more death. When Jesus heals, he's giving signs of a kingdom, but also a foretaste of it as well. In the promise of Jesus' kingdom coming in full one day, we are being reminded that everything in the end is going to be all right. No pain will be wasted when every sad thing comes untrue. So we have hope, don't we? But further, if Jesus is now on the throne of all things and the local church is an out, uh, uh, local expression of the kingdom of heaven, then who is it now that is supposed to push back the darkness? Who is supposed to evidence the love of God? Who is supposed to be united across racial and ethnic lines? Who is supposed to defeat the enemy? Is it not the church? If the kingdom of God is manifest through the church and the evidence of its presence is changed lives, then isn't it now our responsibility to advocate for the kingdom and to push back darkness through the authority and power of the king? How can we do that from the sidelines? We must think of the kingdom rightly so that we can obey our king properly and be the kingdom ambassadors that he said we already are. A proper understanding of the kingdom of God is crucial, which makes these verses that we're looking at today some of the most important ones in our Bibles regarding the kingdom of God. But I think much of our language about the kingdom can be a little off. We don't bring the kingdom. We don't advance the kingdom. We don't grow the kingdom. We don't usher in the kingdom or any such thing. But what we do as we advocate for the interests of the king, we join together to do it, then the kingdom breaks continually into the world in and through us. I found this illustration by Kevin DeYoung helpful. He said, think of it like the sun. When the clouds part on a cloudy day, we don't say the sun has grown. We say the sun has broken through. Our view of the sun has changed or obstacles to the sun have been removed, but we have not changed the sun. The sun does not depend on us. We do not bring the sun or act upon it. The sun can appear, its warmth can be felt or stifled, but the sun does not grow. He goes on, God certainly uses means and employs us in his work, but we are not makers or bringers of the kingdom. The kingdom can be received by more and more people, but this does not entail growth of the kingdom. We herald the kingdom and live according to its rules, but we do not build it or cause it to grow because it already is and already has come. That's the case. Don't you want to be part of what God is doing in the world? Let me ask it this way. If all of this is true, okay, if the kingdom has come, you believe it has? And if Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom now and in the future, and if the kingdom marches on by the initiative of God, 
then shouldn't we want to be a part of it? Isn't that an incredible thing? That God is working in the world, and His chosen King has come into the world, bringing the kingdom with Him, and all of history centers on Him, and all of history bends towards His ultimate victory, and He's inviting you into His story. He's inviting you into what He is doing in the world. Is there anything you can be involved in on earth that compares to this? Here's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees and what He's telling us. You do not need to search for the kingdom. You need to respond to Him to find its presence and benefits. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he's been inviting people in. His very first words in Mark's gospel are, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not the kingdom of God is only coming at some distant point in the future. Not the kingdom of God will come when people do what they ought. Not the kingdom is coming with signs and wonders from the sky. The kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is at hand. It doesn't come with military might and political power. It comes through the second person of the Trinity, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but descending first into the belly of a betrothed teenager, then being born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough, to growing up in an unregarded backwater town, to living the life of a vagabond with no place to lay his head, to being mocked and spat on, and tried in a kangaroo court, to being denied and abandoned by all of his friends, to hanging naked and alone on a Roman cross, to being buried in a borrowed tomb, to kicking the grave door open three days later, to ascending on high to the highest seat that there ever was, and one day he will come back to judge the living and the dead, to set his kingdom up in fullness. But between now and then he is saying, the kingdom has come, now repent and enter in. Are those good enough signs for you? Who would have guessed that the kingdom of God would come through any of that? Certainly not the Pharisees, but that is how God chose to bring the kingdom in. And this otherworldly kingdom is only reserved for ragamuffins and riffraff who recognize the beauty and glory of King Jesus and repent of their sins and give him allegiance, and then they are in and they are in forever. Does that describe you? My friend, You don't need to search for it. You need to respond rightly. The king is here, which means the kingdom is here, and you are being invited in, but you can miss it if you don't respond in time. Have you responded? Make no mistake, my friends. You belong to a kingdom, but there are only two, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And you are in one of those. Everything you know, everyone you know is in one of those. There is no middle. There is no Sweden available where you could just be neutral. If you aren't in the kingdom of God, you are in the kingdom of darkness. And you must make a choice. Some of you have never come into the kingdom at all because you've never given Jesus your allegiance. Today is the day to bend knee to the one true king. Some of you have seen the church as an optional add-on to the Christian life. And some of you have privatized your faith so much that you don't see the church as an embassy of God that you are to give your life to. Some of you have relegated the church to the fringes of your life to where you come once in a while, you know, when you don't have anything else going on. 
Some of you fit the church in when you can rather than ordering your life around the church. Some of you don't see the importance of the church in God's program like Jesus does. And some of you want to be your own king or queen rather than submitting to the true one. Do any of those descriptors fit you, I wonder? Jesus in his grace has provided you with this moment to respond rightly. Will you? The time to respond won't last forever. You know this? If the kingdom of God and the time for the end of the age was close when Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago, how much closer is it now? The time to respond is now. Jesus' kingdom is a surprising one. It's not of this world. It's different than anything the world has ever seen. Most importantly, the kingdom is Jesus, and he is calling all of us undeserving sinners to come into his kingdom and join in what he is doing in the world. Will you respond rightly? You have all the signs you need. Don't miss them. Repent, come in, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and the end draws nigh. This glorious Jesus will reign forever. Will you reign with him?